Hello, everyone. You better get that tryptophan working because we are taking a jump back to Thanksgiving time. <laughs> Don't let that food coma hit just yet. My name is Nora Eckert, and you're listening to The Conversationalist. On the day before Thanksgiving, I interrupted Lisa Calhoun's lovely Arizona vacation where she was playing golf with her husband to have a conversation about her success in the venture capital field, the narrative surrounding women in the business world, and the differences between natural bias and overt sexism and racism. We also talked about how millennials can make positive change in the workplace on their own terms. So who is Lisa Calhoun? Here are just a few highlights from her work. She started Right to Market, which is a tech public relations firm. She's the author of How You Rule the World, a female founder's survival guide. And in addition, she's an advisor to Women Who Code and an Atlanta tech star mentor. She is also the first woman to start a venture capital fund in Georgia. Her firm is called Valor Ventures. Okay, so before moving on, I think it's helpful to just define what a venture capital fund is, because I only had a vague idea of what it was before I started researching for this interview. So a venture capital fund is an investment fund that manages the money of investors who seek private equity stakes in startups and small to medium-sized businesses with strong growth potential. So basically, Lisa scouts out these opportunities for investors and helps them invest their money in profitable ventures. So how did she get to this point? How did she build such an impressive resume? Well, let's start from a few years back. She said that she was really excited to go to college because she had worked a lot before going to college, so she saw it as an opportunity to just sort of take a break and learn. took a a four-year break, very excitedly, to learn. As she had a full-ride scholarship, she felt the freedom to pursue the subjects she was passionate about or interested in with a bit less of the financial pressure that often accompanies a college education. And I had a full ride scholarship, so that wasn't bumpy. It was almost like a huge vacation. Truly. Oh, wow. And I enjoyed it immensely. So I could take all the classes I wanted, and I dug right into that and enjoyed that a lot. When she was in school, she treated it less as a time to prepare for a particular career and more as an opportunity for self discovery. When I asked if she was concerned about pursuing a specific career path when in college, she responded, No. Um, I do think that a lot of millennials focus on that. Sometimes I wonder if that's their their parents worried about their future more than maybe they do, or if it's a learned behavior. Relax about, you know, would I be successful? I didn't ask myself that question so much in college. I wanted to learn more who I was. Yeah, yeah. 
I dug into that because I thought if I could get a better sense of, of who I was aside from work, maybe I would choose the work that would be the most fulfilling or meaningful. Lisa explains how her background caused her to focus more on how she could serve her community than serve herself. And this made it easier to not be so singularly focused on how she could benefit from a specific career. And, you know, I also came from a fairly conservative Christian upbringing. Okay. Where the idea is that your gifts are uh, a gift from God and you put them into service. So you're not looking so much to make yourself rich, although there's nothing wrong with with money. Yes. Um, but how do you put your own gifts into service for your community? And that, that that idea, although I'm no longer religious, is still, I think, a very, very good idea. And mm. I had that in mind as well. I was like, who am I so that I can figure out how I can best serve? And Lisa is currently serving through many capacities in her work at Valor Ventures, through her mentorship, through her publications and through her dedication to ensuring that women and minorities are represented in the workplace. We'll get to this last element in a bit, but before diving into how Lisa tries to make a more representative workplace, it's important that we discuss the working environment in Georgia, where she is based. According to data from the U.S. Census, Georgia is number one in the nation for yielding female entrepreneurs and number two in the nation for yielding black entrepreneurs. Lisa explains that part of this is due to the population of Georgia. Georgia is a very pro-business state um, at the top of that group, and it really fosters its small business economy. Mm. It also has a fairly decent population, 17 million people and a couple of very strong cities, you know, like Atlanta and Savannah. 30.5% of the population is African-American, and the national average is 12.6%. We also have uh, one of the most dense African-American population yeah. in the country, so it stands to reason. I mean, a city like Atlanta is majority African-American, so it totally stands to reason that we would see more production of African-American entrepreneurs So when we look at the business climate in Atlanta, she says that they're doing relatively well in the statistics and the amount of entrepreneurs produced from minority groups or women entrepreneurs, but there is so much room for improvement nonetheless. I think there is, in a conservative business climate, the feeling that uh, African-American entrepreneurs and women can't get ahead as fast as they would like to. Yes. And there is definitely that that sense in both populations, and I can speak for mine, but I also spoke a great deal with the African-American community. And whether that's uh, perceived, whether that's real discrimination, whether it's just bias, whether it's mm, the class yes, yes. feeling, um, that exists. And so it creates this different landscape for a minority entrepreneur in Georgia to say, you know what, I can't change the culture, but I can see my own thing. These entrepreneurs from minority groups are emerging in Georgia because there's a sense that in traditional business climates, they can't get ahead. 
so they create spaces where they can. That's where entrepreneurship happens, in this space where people get frustrated enough with the traditional way things are going and want to forge their own path. So this is sort of a good and a bad thing, right? Because it stimulates the economy on one hand and forces people to want to create spaces where they can be successful, but it also means that these people feel that they can't get ahead in the traditional business climate and that creating these individual spaces is sort of their only opportunity to get ahead. So our production rate of new entrepreneurs is really high, in part because it's possible that our business culture gives them the the perception that they won't get ahead as fast in the traditional culture. So why is the climate the way it is? Lisa dives into a super interesting point here about natural bias. So this was the part of the interview that has stuck with me even longer than the Thanksgiving turkey. It poked into my mind several times since. She explains how she does not think overt sexism and racism is necessarily rampant, but natural bias certainly is. Do you think there is a certain natural bias? People select people who are like them. You know, I do like to work with women. I work with a lot of women. Ooh, you know, am I biased? I guess so, yes. <laughs> and so you have a lot of, of older white men in, in positions of power. They like to work with people they understand with similar backgrounds. Makes sense. And that creates an opportunity for people to build something new if they don't like that. And so Georgian entrepreneurs take advantage of that opportunity. After Lisa mentioned natural bias, it got me thinking and it made more sense to me from my perspective. So as a white woman, as a white person, I don't feel marginalized often, but even as a woman, I haven't really experienced overt sexism. But I'm privileged to say that, that I've never experienced really prominent examples of racism or sexism. And I totally understand that people have experienced those and I don't want to diminish those. However, I think these subtle indicators of natural bias are more rampant. I don't think most people are bad enough to be these racist or sexist bigots, but I do think people are creatures of habit and they want what is familiar. So looking at it in this context makes a lot more sense to me and covers a lot more of the population than looking at it just from the lens of a heinous racist or sexist acts. So I wanted to dig into this a bit further because I thought this is a really useful tool when you look at addressing conversations with people who might not be open to considering that racism or sexism or any sort of prejudice is still very prominent in today's society because it manifests in these smaller ways. And when you look at it from this perspective, it's not coming from a malicious place. And I think that's what the key is here. Most people aren't acting out of malice, they're acting out of discomfort or more a desire to be comfortable. So that's why natural bias makes so much more sense to me. Because it doesn't make people bad, it just makes them creatures of habit. That's such an interesting perspective. I, I was going to ask you about that as well, with sort of the skepticism surrounding um, you know, racism and sexism and saying that, you know, the, the lack of, of female or African-American entrepreneurs is indicative of that. But 
that, that feeling of natural bias, that's, I think that, you know, that um, starting a conversation in that context might be a good way to engage people in a different way. Yeah, I really, you know, I don't feel like people have tried to discriminate against me. I just don't. And yet I do feel sometimes that some conversations are less comfortable with me in them than mm. they would have been if I had not showed up. Yes. So it's, that's um, not the same thing as hardcore sex. It's really not. And I can see it too when I'm in a fun conversation with my, you know, female friends in the C-suite, CFOs and, and people who, you know, CIOs, and we're having a great time and, and a guy walks up and we are still having a great time. The guy's welcome. But it is slightly different conversation, right? Yeah. It is. You need changes in perspective or diverse perspectives to give a conversation more dimension. So even though it might be comfortable to surround yourself with people who look or think like you, it's not productive. And we have stats to show this, and that's going to come in a bit. In many ways, that change can be a good thing. I think a lot of people realize, hey, when you want diverse perspectives, you better make sure you have diverse perspectives at the table. But for a lot of things, it just becomes a little bit more awkward. So I'm a fan of creating inclusive culture. I really am. But I notice that unless you make a very strong effort consciously, the natural human tendency is not to create an inclusive culture, but to create a fairly uh, homogenous culture of people who believe like I believe. And you see mm-hmm. it even on our Facebook pages. You know, a lot of people were surprised by the election results. I was. Now we're getting into something a bit more focused than just this big idea of widespread racism or sexism. And this example is the 2016 election results. We've all heard of the liberal bubble that exists on both coasts, and I think it really is true in some ways. But there's isolation and closed-mindedness on both sides of the aisle. I think we have to address that. And the refusal to consider other viewpoints only worsens that. I think almost all reports that I was exposed to told us that Donald Trump was not going to win. And of course, that wasn't the result. So there are many reasons for this. I'm not going to pretend like I know them all. I know that the way voting data was collected has been questioned, the efficacy of that, that maybe certain parts of the population were ignored in that process. But I think natural bias definitely is a factor here. Yeah. But if you read my Facebook page as an indicator, you would have thought that, you know, that Trump wouldn't have gotten but three votes. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. So why, is, why is that? You know, the Facebook algorithm looks at what it thinks you believe and, you know, it got me right. I thought a female first brother would be awesome. And it read that and so it showed me that, that bias. It showed me my own bias. Many parts of the population were living in this world, this kind of self-contained world where this makes sense because everybody else reflected their viewpoint. So how could it be any different? And that was really, really um, disturbed after the election results. And I think it made us more introspective as a result, regardless of what side you were on, to think, how could I have been so convinced otherwise? How could I have had such a narrow view of the picture?
So in combating natural bias, this is where Lisa's program called Startup Runway comes into play. The mission of this program is to showcase the top 10% of women and minority-informed founding teams building stellar businesses and connect them with investors who understand early-stage companies. So it's to give these groups of people opportunities that normally aren't given them in the traditional business climate. This is an initiative to bring more people to the table and not, in Lisa's words, ghettoize anyone. So around Startup Runaway, I thought, hey, you know what? Um, I don't believe in girl ghettos or creating special spaces and, and kind of ghettoizing anybody in particular and showing them off as a, like in a zoo. Oh, look, here we have the purple entrepreneurs. No, yeah. no, that's not fun. But I do think that in a, when an honest, when an honest executive group or a group of leaders says, I don't know any, mm, maybe that's a true cry for help. Mm. So how many times in my life have I heard, I don't know any women entrepreneurs with technical startups. I don't know any. I mean, it was quoted from Sequoia and everyone laughed at them and said, look how stupid they are. But actually, they were sharing their truth, and I think that should always be respected. It doesn't have to be agreed. It can be respected. And so respecting what I'm hearing in the Southeast, that there are no women and black African-American entrepreneurs, or there's not a significant number, there's very few, they're rare entities. I thought, okay, respecting that, let's, let's find out. And so Startup Runway was begun as kind of a, a conscious dialogue with the business community about who the business community is and what we, we inclusively, what we look like. Lisa's intentionality about not showcasing these entrepreneurs as minorities, especially, but as giving them a platform to have their voices heard in a significant capacity is very important to me. I think actions such as affirmative action are met with this knee-jerk response from so many people as being reverse racism. And perhaps people might view Startup Runway in this capacity, too. I bet there are lots of people who think, why don't you just give opportunities to the top performing 10% of entrepreneurs of any color or sex and not just women or minorities? The problem is minorities are inherently at a disadvantage because of that natural bias. If left to their own devices, most people would not make the effort to start an inclusive culture, perpetuating this largely male and white business world. From my perspective, this doesn't serve to vilify white men who are working hard and making achievements and working their way up the business ladder. And especially, it doesn't serve to vilify those white men who maybe can't catch a break themselves. It's just that certain populations are disproportionately represented in the workplace. And that is dangerous because we create a climate where there is a limited group of perspectives and people who have influence and ultimately money. And unfortunately, that cycle doesn't stop until someone like Lisa is intentional about creating a diverse workplace. So I mentioned we're going to touch on some stats earlier. Let's talk about the state of the U.S. workforce. Here are a few snapshots. 
There are more CEOs of Fortune 500 companies named John than there are women CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Yes, you heard that right. There's more guys who are CEOs named John than there are women CEOs of, of Fortune 500 companies at all. By the way, all the sources for these stats are going to be listed in the description of this podcast so you can see where I got this information from. So only 1% of Fortune 500 companies have African-American CEOs. Ethnically diverse companies are 35% more likely to outperform their respective national industry medians. So there you go, you have some tangible proof of the efficacy of diversity and intentional initiatives to increase diversity within the company. And this is also related to gender. So gender diverse companies are 15% more likely to outperform their respective national industry medians. So why isn't this happening? We talked about natural bias, but also many CEOs say that it's difficult to make diversifying the workplace a priority. In fact, 41% of managers say they are too busy to implement diversity initiatives. But we're seeing a shift in emphasis here with generations. Millennials, which have been confirmed as the largest generation in US history by the 2015 census, are changing the workplace. 83% of millennials are more actively engaged when they believe their company fosters an inclusive culture. And in 10 years, millennials will comprise nearly 75% of the workforce. Lisa comments on how millennials can change the workplace on their own terms. Well, you know, I think millennials don't need to worry because they're going to be in charge. And it's such a huge, large generation. Um, maybe their people managing them are worried, but they don't need to take that on. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really think that there's this, this sense that the older management structure, which isn't as familiar with computers, which isn't as multitasked, um, which is just different, is seeing something very different and going, oh my God, this won't work. But it's not up to the older generation to make it work either. It's up to the millennials to make it work. So I think a lot of times millennials are hearing that they are supposed to do this and this and this and this before that. And it creates anxiety when actually it's like, hey, breathe and look at what you want. What is truly standing in your way between you and what you want? And go through that. Go through that. But don't go through all the other stuff that maybe you're just being told. And, and by people who want the best for you, sure, okay. But maybe you're just being told someone else's story, but you have to live yours. We started talking about the strengths that a woman might possess in the business world. And this led to a conversation about some of the redundant narratives surrounding women who are successful in venture capitalism or just in the business world in general. I think it's all about how you take it. Like, in other words, any one person, male or female, can look at the glass half full or the glass half empty. And so, you know, if I'm having a bad day, I'll, I'll be thinking that my glass will cool empty or maybe even the glass next to me. And if I'm having a great day and I do a lot to try to ensure I'm staying in a positive place, then there's always a way to see the half empty, I mean, the half full. There really is. But it's just a perspective. And so I don't think that gender per se, actual sexual gender, 
confers any advantages or disadvantages because we are a human species. We come in two flavors of procreation. I don't think that's a business topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I prefer to keep it out of business. Yeah. Everything else is kind of a learned skill. So, uh, you know, sales, marketing, networking, finance. Gender does not apply. I mean, you, you, this isn't about your gonads. It's really about your training your mind. Can we just pause for the quote of the year, please? This isn't about your gonads. This is about training your mind. It's absolutely genius. But moving on. So I don't think it confers, I don't think my actual sex confers any advantages or disadvantages. And so that leads into my next question for you is, do you get frustrated with the narratives or I guess even the questions like that that surround you as a woman in the business world? Do you think they are sort of often, you know, gender focused or focused more on like emotional interactions um, rather than sort of looking more objectively? Well, I get asked what it's like to be a woman in D.C. with any interview that I do. Yes. And I'm not tired of the question. I think that it's an honest want to understand kind of question. So, hey, that's always good, wanting to understand different perspectives comes from such a positive place. But I think the question itself (laughs) is almost looking for an answer. Yes. And it's maybe the wrong question. Yeah. When I was preparing for this interview, I wrote and I backspaced and I jotted and I erased several questions to the effect of what is it like to be a woman in this world, in the venture capital world? Every time I wrote it, it just seemed too stale. Why don't I ask her what it's like being Lisa in the business world? What our personal strengths are as a person instead of reducing it to just black and white, men versus women. I think of this a lot with people who are the first to do something. I was just listening to a Radiolab episode the other day about the first female gondolier in Italy. Now, this person, who was actually born as a woman but identifies as a man, his name is Alex. So Alex was constantly asked, what is it like to be the first woman gondolier? Now, this question is going to be doubly exasperating for Alex if he was born female and identifies as male. There's this wonderful part of the interview where Alex just kind of sighs at the reporters and says, and this is in an Italian accent that I will not try to attempt, that question has been asked a million times. That is such an old question. Give me something new. Give me something interesting so your listeners don't have to hear the same interview over and over and over. That was it. That was my one attempt. Immediately when I listened to that Radiolab episode, I thought of my interview with Lisa. Not because she acted exasperated with me, but because she expressed a frustration with the question itself. It isn't really the right question. So in a weird kind of meta way, we discussed how one might interview a woman in her position. Basically, I'm outsourcing my one job as the conversationalist, and that is to come up with interview questions. So I asked Lisa, what questions should we be asking? I think the question is, where are the big opportunities in venture capital? Mm-hmm. Okay, so me, as a bit of an outsider, I see the landscape differently, and that is a total strength. That is a total strength. And so, 
it happens to be that I come from an outside perspective because of the woman, but honestly, it's very unusual for Atlanta. A, a VC from Atlanta is still very unusual. A VC from the South is unusual. So there are lots of ways in which my perspective is different. And so what I see as opportunity is different. As I have done with most or all of my interviews, I pried into Lisa's definition of success. This is always a hard question to ask for me because the true answer is usually related to what makes people happy, not necessarily successful, but I don't want to ask that question. I don't want to ask them what makes them happy because sometimes people do not associate success with happiness. They keep them separate. So some people automatically jump to education or money or influence or career status as a measure of success and keep their sense of fulfillment or happiness kind of separate. So I still phrase the question in a very cookie cutter manner asking how they define success, even though I have problems with it, because I think it's so telling to see how people interpret that. Lisa was one of those people who translated it into what makes me happy which turned out to not really be career-related, which is what I found with most of my interviews for The Conversationalist with stereotypically successful people. Her, a definition. So I think success is like a lot of things in life. You, you know it when you get it. Like even a good golf swing, you know. Yeah. You know it when you have it. And until instead, the best, the best golfers in the world they probably find the most at fault with their swing because they know their swing so well. And yet, is it success? So I think success is a very relative concept mm-hmm. to the person who is talking about it. So I don't define it even for myself. I, I let it float out there. And I, I'm more concerned probably with other things than success. Mm-hmm. I think success is sort of a... Summer in nature, like beauty, it's not unimportant. It's not, I don't disregard it, but I don't prioritize success per se for myself. I do prioritize um, financial independence. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think independence is huge. I, I do prize. Um, Working in community and collaboration, I don't actually like to be a loner. I don't need to work in a huge group or huge company, but I prize the value of collaboration for whatever the work is. I like collaboration, and it makes me um, feel the work is stronger and, and going to last. And those two, those two things, independence and collaboration, do more for me around happiness than any particular measure of success. Yeah. When you think of how Lisa has a myriad of engagements, how she is involved in publishing and obviously in the venture capital world, also in mentorship, I wonder how she balances it all. And she said it's really hard and pretty much impossible in a way to strike a perfect balance, but the key to a healthier, more sane lifestyle is being able to accept what you have and also just breathe. I really like the Buddhist philosophies for this, and I've, I'm not 
a serious, serious practicing Buddhist, but I do pay attention to Buddhist philosophy and have for a couple of decades now. And there's there's this theory of um, acceptance, accept what is, and let everything else sort of fall from there, your clear acceptance of the true reality, as true as you can see it. Try to get your judgments, your opinions, your biases actually <laughs> out of the way and just be clearly accept that and then let that naturally lead to the next moment so that you are constantly in the now and not worrying about things um, that, oh, but it could have, you know, you can worry about the past, you can worry about the future, you can worry about the moment. Buddhism is about not worrying at all, <laughs> just sort of <laughs> being there. So I, I follow that philosophy and thus I don't worry about work-life balance at all. I do accept my commitments. For example, my commitment to my husband in a, in a relationship, my commitment to my aging parents in, in a relationship with them, my commitment to my investors to make sure that I do everything possible to be their fiduciary and deliver the returns they're looking for. So I have these commitments and they're part of my core being and accepting that completely does guide my actions. So even though I didn't catch her at the best time... I am in Arizona pacing outside of the practice range at a cool golf course. Oh my gosh! I'm so happy I got the chance to talk with Lisa and hear her insightful take on natural bias, the importance of acceptance, and how narratives surrounding successful women can become a bit repetitive. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Nora Eckert. This is normally the spot where I'd say check out my full video conversation with Lisa on my website. However, this just exists in podcast format. So why don't you go check out some other video conversations I've had on my website. For example, with a character designer from Disney and DreamWorks, the inventor of the first commercial microprocessor, and an MD and PhD professional from Mayo Clinic who cured a woman of cancer using measles virus. That's just the start, so go and check it out. And as always, send me suggestions for people you think I should talk to at theconversationalistne at gmail.com. I actually got in touch with Lisa from a previous conversationalist interview I did with a entrepreneur and politician from Madison, Wisconsin, who ran for mayor of Madison. His name is Scott Resnick. He put me in touch with Lisa after our conversation. So thank you to Scott Resnick for creating this connection for me as well. A huge thank you to Lisa for taking the time to talk, even while she was on vacation. I hope you all have a great morning or afternoon or evening. To celebrate the timing of this interview, treat yourself to an indulgent meal that must, and it is essential, believe me, include some pie. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you soon. And it is essential, believe me. And gosh, there's a car outside that wants to interrupt this podcast. How inconsiderate.